Oh, do you sure. want to talk about her? You sure? No, no I don't think that's about her. You're a mom, and you know, no, no. You what? I petty. told you that before this podcast. I know oh. we gonna talk. Get out of here. Welcome to another episode of Petty Politics. Hey, how's it going? It's Cam. It's Bree. And welcome to the second episode. I mean, quick. I feel like. No, we, you know, we have a turnaround now. Right, <laughs> turnaround right. Turnaround time. We're getting you this news ASAP. We're, we're trying to get, games. we're really trying to get the schedule going properly. And so hopefully we'll be able to give you an episode. I'm thinking every Tuesday or so. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Every Tuesday. Because so, we're recording on Fridays. Right. So the first episode is already up. Thanks to everyone who has already taken a listen to it. Mm-hmm. Be sure to share it with your friends. And sorry for a little bit of uh, technical difficulties we had. I'm sure there was a little bit of like a overwrite on the disc and so you might have heard like an interview yeah, in the background <laughs> but we're getting better right yeah, first episode better. growing pains so today in life and the law we're going to talk a little bit about why we went to law school we're going to also talk in the political about a couple of different things including healthcare, russia meddling hurricane aid north korea the air force and also colin kaepernick and the hashtag take a knee protest mm-hmm. what are we doing in the petty Oh, God, so much. I mean, who can stop being petty on petty all day, every day? I mean, that's... <laughs> no, okay, we're talking about the Kardashians. We're right. talking about Bodak Yellow. Super Congrats, important. Cardi B. <laughs> what else are we talking about? Those probably going to be the majority of it. Yeah, we have a lot of political to talk about today, so we can't really get into the petty, but just just know that petty is always, you know... It's always present. Yeah. It's always around. It's, it's always around. Let's get started. <laughs> All right, y'all, we're going to get started with life and the law. So when we created this segment, one of our interests was really to provide people more understanding about why we went to law school and also how to get into law school. Mm -hmm. A lot of people think that law school can be a place for people to grow and develop and develop a really great career. And we agree. And we want to make sure that we can provide as much information as possible to people who are interested in moving forward with that goal. So first, we're going to talk a little bit about why we went to law school and a little bit about the process that we went through in order to make it here. I've always known that I wanted to go to law school. I've always known that law school was going to be in my trajectory, whether it be short term or long term goals. And I ended up just going straight through. So right when I graduated college, I went straight through to law school, which was great. During my undergrad, I went to St. John's. I actually majored in legal studies, and so I pretty much knew that the legal sector was in my future career path. Mm -hmm. I interned at the Queen's Bar Association. I interned with the U.S. House of Representatives at the Congressman's Office of New York's 5th District. That's in Queens. I also worked as a legal research assistant for the law office of Andrew Shatkin. Mm. I worked researching complex litigation issues. I did a lot of... Um, secretarial work and things of that sort. And so because my career path was so molded in the legal sector, because I was doing so much work, I ended up saying, hey, let me apply to law school during my senior year. Yeah. And so during my senior year of college, I ended up taking the LSAT. And right when I got my score back, I applied. I sent out my applications. I had already had them prepared. I don't think everyone's trajectory has to be the same. A lot of questions I get regarding going to law school is, you know, what should I major in? What should I enter in? Mm -hmm. You know, 
one thing that I wanted to let you guys know, there's not a specific major that you have to have in order to get in law school that actually stands out and makes you look better. You can be an arts major right. and go to Harvard. And actually, I know some people who go went and um, they actually majored in piano, I think it was. Yeah, no, there are a lot of people with arts degrees and arts backgrounds mm-hmm. um, before they came to law school. Mm-hmm. So for some people, law school is their second career, right? Mm-hmm. They've gone and done something already. Yeah, I mean, for most people, I feel like I feel like coming th- straight through, we were the minority. Right, yeah, right. A lot of people were older, a bit more mature. And so when I got here and I'm 21, just getting my car to drink, <laughs> I was... Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. So yeah. I, I kind of always known I was coming to law school, and then when the opportunity presented itself, when I knew it was time to start applying, I was just in it. You know, one thing I also will tell you is that it's hard to access resources to get you in here. It's right. not easy. You need help with your applications. You need to know what the admission committees are looking for. You need help knowing which interns you should and should not be putting on your resume because you do have to provide a resume for law school. You need to help with the LSAT. I could not self-study. I could not. Mm-hmm. I had to take a course. I took Blueprint LSAT. Shout out to Blueprint. They really, no, they really helped me. I, I went up over 20 points. It was great. But still, it just shows, I think, the economic inequalities when it comes to getting higher education and accessing those resources. For sure. I really think you need to have a team when you're trying to go into law school. And I was lucky to have a you team. Do. You do need a team. Right. And, and I was I was lucky to have one really that. early. You know, this started all the way back in high school when I started with speech and debate. Um, shout out to Kerr High School speech and debate team. <laughs> um, back then, that was really my opportunity to speak and to argue and to feel heard. And so that really made me feel like the law might be a great avenue for the work that I wanted to do because you would stand in front of a judge and make your case and defend people mm-hmm. and, and you know make arguments to tell why someone has done something problematic or discriminatory or has offended somebody and all of those opportunities were really interesting to me. The issue was that I didn't know what to major in when I went to undergrad. And so I was very confused. A lot of people will tell you, you have to do philosophy. You have to do something that will prepare you in that way. My parents told me that I had to major in legal studies because I originally Mm -hmm. came in wanting to major in English and minor in art. And so they were like, no, if you don't major in legal studies, you probably won't be able to go to law school. Yeah, And it's actually the exact opposite because as an English or a philosophy major, you actually will garner the tools needed needed to pass or successfully pass, get a high enough score on the LSAT. Yeah. It's more beneficial actually to get into those type of philosophical courses and about ideologies and such. Yeah, I would definitely have done English if I could go back. But I mean, I went ahead and did Reading sociology. Comp no Reading comp was no joke. Of course it was. I mean, I understand that. <laughs> I didn't end up a game. Was I didn't have to game. do it because for me, I ended up doing sociology. And so doing sociology is actually really helpful because I got to learn a lot more about the underpinnings of our laws and some of the things that you won't hear too much about when you're thinking about policy advocacy. Um, I mean, we've done some of it in law school, too. It's not like you can't. Um, But for me, that was really helpful because it meant that when I went to apply to law school, I understood exactly what I wanted to change about the law, not that I wanted to simply join the process of creating new law, but that there are issues with it right now that can be changed. I I would say that you get two types of law students. I would say you get the kind that come in like Cam and they've been working on these types of issues and they know kind of what they want to do and how they want to change, implement change. And then there's people like me who kind of come in Mm. like, oh, I just I, I knew I wanted a law degree, but. But 
you know, what's next. And, you know, that's kind of interesting. It's an interesting dynamic because I'm still kind of in that space, like, what's next? Like, I know I want to go to a law firm. I know I eventually want to teach. I know I want to write, as I talked about a little bit more in the last podcast. But I really don't know exactly what it is I want to do. And that's another thing we want to tell you guys. It's okay. It's okay at this stage as a 3L to not know what you want to do for the rest of your life, especially if you came straight through. I'm 23 years old. I just, I don't know. <laughs> right. Am I supposed to know? <laughs> right. And and people at in law school will, will definitely share that. And that's hopefully something we can talk about in another segment is kind of how you figure out where you want to go with this law degree, what opportunities are available to you. I mean, also a little bit more about the specific process that we went through in terms of LSAT exactly. prep, developing application, our application. Yeah, exactly. And if you guys do want help or have suggestions on the materials that you need us to talk about to help you get into law school and such, just email us. We'll talk about it on the next segment. All right, let's get into the political. We got a really packed plate for you this week. We really do. Lots of tea, lots of servings here. Uh, so where do we start? I mean, we can start with an update from last week. Last week, we talked about the health care bill, the Graham-Cassidy bill, the next attempt to defund and, you know, eliminate the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. Okay. What happened with the Graham-Cassidy bill? Str- I mean, it's been shot down. Oh. It's out. Yikes. All <laughs> That's, right. Uh, it's finished. That's over. It's canceled. <laughs> <laughs> so this time around, I think we had almost the same number of people that were opposed to Let, this Let's bill. just get a little bit of background on this. Because yeah. If you didn't listen to the last one, then you don't necessarily know what we're going to be talking about. So let's start. Firstly, we really wanted to emphasize on our last podcast that health care reform is a bipartisan goal. So restructuring and distributing affordable health care has proven to be a bipartisan goal. But in this administration, it's causing such a divide. For example, the Republican Party has failed three times to enact a health care bill that not even their caucus can agree on. Under the Trump administration the alone. Tr- yeah, <laughs> under alone. And then, you know, the Democrats seem to support the ACA, but we're not really hearing much about what they're supporting right now. We're not really hearing their opinions, which is interesting, except, you know, the Bernie bill did just kind of come sweep the left side. We don't, I don't really know much about that single pair. Do you know? I, and I, I don't actually know that it has been swept up by the left, unfortunately. Yeah, I don't think that, it, yeah, it's just there. It's just different. You know, it's suggesting a type of universal health care system. It's basically calling for a national health insurance program administered by the federal government. So basically, everything from primary care to hospital stays would be covered under a plan without a requirement for out-of-pocket spending on deductibles right. and copayments. I think the general premise of the Bernie bill, as it's being called, is that as we have other social services that are created and funded by the government, so too should health care be done that way. Mm-hmm. I think the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, was kind of a compromise between what the right would want and what the left would want in that it is partially funded by the government. The government creates the general scheme for health care, but it still allows for privatization in that people can still keep their private insurance and that private insurer can join the infrastructure of Obamacare in order to continue being profitable. So what do you think is the biggest pushback against ACA? Against the ACA? Yeah. I so, think... Because I yeah. feel like, you know, I feel like Obama at least recognized that health care is a bipartisan goal. And so I think that he implemented, I guess, regulation that both sides could at least, you know, agree could be implemented. Mm-hmm. For example, we do have the privatization, but we also do have affordable health care, you know, for the poverty-stricken communities. I think the concept for Obamacare was that it wasn't going to be perfect at implementation, right? Mm-hmm. 
or the, the, this was in itself a goal to create more of a utopian healthcare system, mm-hmm. right? The goal was to make sure that everyone had healthcare, and it may not exactly. be efficient or cost effective in the first or like generation. The ones, which would be free. It's not going to be right. free. Well, exactly. not free, right? Exactly. Yeah. The government's going to pay for it. And with Obamacare, the idea was that yes, it may be a little bit rocky at the start, but over time we'll be able to tweak it. New amendments will come in, and hopefully that way people will be able to move forward with it. Exactly. So with Obamacare, I think that at least it was able to open up meaningful and constructive dialogue about universal health care and what it means for the United States to shift into this type of model, which has helped so many other countries, which we're still struggling at. We're still struggling at health care reform. And yeah. we can even see more of the struggle this week as the Graham-Cassidy bill has been completely shot down. It didn't even get to the vote. The vote was supposed to be on September the 30th. So the vote was actually supposed to happen tomorrow. Maybe I shouldn't say dates because you're not going to hear this until mm-hmm. Tuesday. But the vote was supposed to happen on September the 30th. And they were just like, OK, well, we're not even going to vote because we've not been able to garner enough support at this point. Right, right. We had John McCain again coming out saying no, Mm -hmm. he didn't want to vote for it. Um, We also had, I think, uh, Senator Collins as well, who was... They just were not prepared to vote for it. And I think that it just highlighted how they were trying to expedite a non-transparent bill through Congress that we really didn't know what was in that bill. All we knew that it essentially turned control of the healthcare markets over to the states. So rather than the federal government funding Medicaid and subsidies directly, that money would have been put into block grants that a state could use to basically develop any healthcare system that they wanted. And we saw already what happened when the states have completely unregulated control over redistributive policies. We know what happens. It's a political way of pricing the poor out of healthcare. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much it. The Graham healthcare bill has been shot, Graham Cassidy, excuse me, has been shot down. And we're, I, I feel like sad. <laughs> I mean, I'm just waiting for the next iteration of this. I do not think that they're done. And, and here's yeah. my general hypothesis about this, is that Obamacare in its current iteration without major reforms to it mm-hmm. is going to fail. And I think that is it why is. senators, that, that is a, the reason why conservative folks and Republicans are trying to create an alternative is because they know under their current scheme, it's going to end up bankrupting itself mm-hmm. and they're going to inevitably be able to pass something new to replace it. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think it's really important that folks on the left are also offering an opportunity and an alternative to Obamacare and saying, it's, yes, it's I great, mean, yeah. but we can also we change can also it. We can also change it. But the thing is, right, what we have right now is the Bernie bill, I think, that is their solution. It's not the entire left solution, but I mean, it's the, celestial, the solution produced by the other side. And I think that that solution, if I was going to critique it, I would say it has just a fundamental lack of economic analysis and planning. Bernie was questioned on how he would receive funding for this bill. You know what he said? He said he's going to look at the IRS. You know what that means? Taxing. And yeah, yeah. You know, we're not, uh, um, I'm not opposed. I'm, I'm personally not opposed. But I, I think to get into the mechanics but of I think that, that bill. Then it becomes tautological. You know, we're upset about the funding. That's what most Republicans have an issue with regarding the ACA. And so we're kind of using that same mechanism to go and implement another bill. And guess what happens? The same result. I, I think the issue with the Obamacare bill is that it's trying to balance out two different opposing ideas. 
keeping a private market going and also providing access exactly. and healthcare to everyone. Exactly. And so I think in order for us to really achieve that, we're going to have to choose one or the other. And okay. I think that is why I like that we at least have a left alternative in the single payer bill. Yeah. Because that gives you another way to think about this and how yeah. to improve it. And to that's move what it to I thought left. too. I thought that maybe the Bernie bill wouldn't be successful, but at least it would initiate dialogue that's necessary in healthcare reform right now. Right. And let's hopefully let's let's hope that it actually does, right? At, at this point, I'm not seeing too much support on the left or from Democrats. Mm-hmm. Hopefully they'll start to understand it a little bit more and move it at least from a point of impossibility to a point of, you know, political calculus, right? Because everyone I'm Definitely hearing... Definitely need to reconcile the two. Yeah, like everyone I'm hearing that talks about it is saying, you know, this is impossible. We could never have a single payer bill. That's just not economically feasible. And that is I true mean, if it, we don't think about it how it could be economically feasible. It reminds me almost of Lawrence Lessig. He's a professor here at Harvard, how he mm-hmm. ran for president. I don't think he wanted to win. I don't think that he wanted to be the president of the United States. I think that he wanted to just create meaningful dialogue on the socio-political patterns that are currently destroying our government. And so he was trying to shed light on political finance laws and mm-hmm. how people are circumventing them and how it's corrupting Congress, which was great. And so I think that maybe the same with Bernie. Maybe he knows that this bill is very progressive and is something that we're not ready for. But as long as it's shedding light on issues that we know we need to change, then guess what? He wins. We all win. Absolutely. Let's talk really quickly about the newest information in the Russia meddling scandal. So much stuff is happening. <laughs> Earlier this week... I'm not, I don't know why I'm laughing. It's not funny. I don't know it's either. <laughs> so recently, I heard that there was some new information coming out. Right, what's happening right now is that we're looking into how Russia ended up influencing the 2016 election. We already know that they have had access to all of these fake news sites and have been trying to push out information to try to change public opinion. Fake news. That's a term coined by the current administration is look look what happened. Correct, correct. (laughs) It's apt. Look look at the collusion. It's an apt term. (laughs) And so the news coming out is saying that organizations that are tied to the Kremlin were actually buying ads in targeted um, areas of the country, including ads that were discussing Black Lives Matter and were targeted to places like Ferguson and Baltimore, among other places. The ads that they were actually pushing out were surprisingly in favor of Black Lives Matter or they Mm -hmm. were, you know, they weren't all on the right. They weren't saying vote for Trump per se. But from what we're understanding, the goal was to create a more polarized political scene. So by having a Black Lives Matter ad and saying we have Black Lives Matter are going to fight against white supremacy and are going to take this issue to the streets is kind of riling up one base. And then they would probably have another ad that was more right wing that had probably issues with immigration or issues with people taking jobs or whatever. And that was going to polarize the right. And ultimately, that meant that there was going to be a very sharp division in the 2016 election. And so it looks like they did a pretty good job, (laughs) at the very least, of pushing that. Yeah, they said that the targeting of the ads was very sophisticated. And it's interesting. I think that that's actually everyone's biggest issue with the Russian collusion is that it created just a natural distrust in the American democratic system amongst citizens. And what happens when that happens? I think that if we can get into nihilism and what Cornel West calls even political nihilism, we just mm-hmm. become, we just end up losing hope in the system and then we are disincentivized to vote and to participate and guess who takes control. So I think that clearly one of the biggest issues with the Russians colluding in creating these ads. Absolutely. But I also don't want to assign all blame to them because I think even that is kind of problematic. I'm sure that, you know, at the very end 
of this entire ordeal when we find out exactly what Russia did and exactly how they influenced the election. The you know people on the left, Democrats are going to say, "See, this is why we lost." And I don't think that that is going to be a sufficient argument to make. Oh my know? God! The ads were amplifying divisive social and political messages across the ideological spectrum. So they were getting into LGBTQ matters and immigration and gun control. They really had their foot in on our government. Yeah, that's crazy. That's and, so and, crazy. And they weren't creating a division that wasn't already there. Exactly. I think they were really just trying to bring it to the light yeah, and to- so they were stirring the pot. Yeah, yeah. The pot. I feel like they weren't creating the division, but it was there, they widened it, and then the division's been emboldened by our current political rhetoric. All right. Another thing that we wanted to talk about is hurricane aid and the general debacle that we're dealing with. President Trump being really inept when it comes to providing aid mm-hmm. to all the different places that are within the U.S. in terms of the contiguous states and also territories. Mm-hmm. So I personally am from Houston. Harvey came through only a couple weeks ago now. Um, and Houston is still trying to repair, trying to rebuild. And I'm thankful that I have you know family there that is totally fine. I do have friends that are in, have been affected by it. Um, I'm sending out my best wishes to them as well as the entire city tries to rebuild. We also had Hurricane Irma that came and ravaged the Caribbean islands. And then we had Hurricane Maria that just went through and has affected Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. And Puerto Rico has really taken the spotlight because... They call it Hurricane Maria. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Oh, you know that they name them... <laughs> well, I mean, they name them, you know, letters so that the first hurricane of the season starts with A and then B, C, D, oh, like that. Know. Yeah. Um, And so Hurricane Maria went and really devastated Puerto Rico. At one point, the entire island was without power. And so it really goes to show you the damage and the devastation that was created by this hurricane, but also shows you how much need there is for the government to go in and provide support, provide relief aid, and help Puerto Rico to rebuild. Puerto Rico is a part of the United States even though it is in the in the Caribbean, right, and it's kind of far off from the U.S. mainland, it's still a part of the United States. And, and although Puerto Rico does not have a voting representative in the House, they still deserve a say. They still deserve to have their needs met mm-hmm. by this government. The issue is that yeah. that isn't happening. And if it's not happening, then the U.S. just needs to stop and give up the territory at this point and just let them break away. There was talks of that because I just think that if they're not properly being represented here, then if they can branch off, in order to attain proper representation, it might be healthier for them. Which is secession in many ways, and I couldn't even imagine how challenging that would be politically. It would be. But here's the news of this week. So Trump has been pretty silent on Puerto Rico, hasn't made too many comments, hasn't gone to Puerto Rico to try to look at the damage or assess it. And a lot of calls have been made for support to come from the mainland in terms of supplies, water, food, hoping to be able to build that electrical infrastructure back up. And Trump was having an issue in that the question was whether or not he was going to waive this really arcane law that affects Puerto Rico and who can bring materials and resources into the ports in Puerto Rico. So we have this really old act called the Jones Act. It was created in around the 1920s. The goal and purpose of this act was really protectionist. The idea was that under the Jones Act, only American vessels, meaning American crew and American ship, American goods and American flag on the ship, only an American American vessels could go to American ports. And the idea of that was that, you know, a foreign port or foreign vessel 
that wanted to bring in items potentially cheaper than the U.S. could potentially undercut the U.S. market, and they didn't want that to happen, and so they created the Jones Act. Now, the mm-hmm. issue is that with the Jones Act in place, it meant that aid to Puerto Rico would come much slower because they had to find an American vessel, they had to find an American crew that could actually begin the process of moving things. And that was the main issue that people were fighting for, because if the Jones Act was exempted or was you know put on moratorium as it has been done in the past, it meant that foreign vessels could provide aid, that American vessels could also provide aid, and would obviously increase the amount of relief in a short time frame as possible. Finally, Trump has waived it for right now. I think the time frame was around 10 days, meaning that Puerto Rico can get aid faster. But it still goes to show that there are tensions between territories and the U.S. government, and also a question of who gets aid, who gets relief, and how quickly that occurs. It's very important to discuss how natural disasters have a racial component to them. Yeah. If we think about Hurricane Katrina, that was a you know case in point in discussing who gets aid, if there are people that are people of color, that are black, that are low income? Are they the first people getting aid? Are they ignored? Are they left for dead? These are issues that have been discussed very prevalently since Hurricane Katrina. And all of these rampant hurricanes in the past month alone have created another issue and another moment to talk about. So you're saying Kanye West was accurate when he said George Bush doesn't care about us. Uh, It it, it was a great question, right? It was a a political statement and a bold move at that time, right? Did you see everyone's faces? But the point of that statement, not that Kanye would probably say it now, But I actually remember a tweet saying, so who is going to be like Kanye in this case saying Trump doesn't care about Puerto Rico? Trump doesn't care about Puerto Rico. It it would be rather important for someone to probably say that because it's been really hard for them to get the relief that they need. But also in Houston, too, I've been looking into an issue that I might want to work on about the third ward in Houston, which is right next to downtown Houston. It is a historically black, historically low income area that has been around for decades. And it was initially a urban center for the black community. They had their own shops, schools, community centers, churches, right? And that was a really important civic space for the black community in Houston until it slowly became a target of gentrification. That meant that houses that used to be really prominent there were being boarded up. Even to this day, parts of the third ward are completely unusable. It's not on par with the development of the rest of Houston, meaning that you can drive one block down from the third ward and be in a bustling metropolis. But inside of the third ward, there are boarded up houses, broken down um, buildings that are not receiving the aid that they need. And the risk is that now that Hurricane Harvey has gone through and really damaged so much of inner cities in Houston, there's a risk that gentrification is going to be used now as an urban development and as a relief tool in saying, all right, the third ward was already damaged damaged and not really usable before Hurricane Harvey. And now that it has gone through, it makes sense for us to retake this land and to make it into a new development space, which is basically what gentrifiers in Houston have been wanting to do this entire time. And so I know that there are people in the third war community and the larger black community that are pushing to fight back on that. And hopefully we can help with that as well. So stay tuned on that issue in case we have any ideas for moving forward with that. Mm -hmm. And also please donate to all of the relief efforts that are going to 
bunch of Puerto Rico, the U.S. Virgin Islands, other Caribbean islands, and also Houston. Actually, there's a song that came out. Um, it's called Mi Gente. It's actually from Jay Balvin, Willie William, and it also features Beyonce. Um, and so it's a really nice charitable effort. All the proceeds from the song Mi Gente are actually going to aid in Puerto Rico, in Mexico, also in the Caribbean islands. So that's really important. Right. So it's really important that we have opportunities to do this and for artists to be using their platform in order to talk really deeply and, and meaningfully about these issues. Let's talk about the NFL. Okay. Now we're going to talk a little bit about the take a knee protests that have been happening across all of these different athletic kind of communities, right? The NFL, NBA, soccer. Have NBA players been taking the knee? They're involved in this for sure, whether or not they're taking the knee. Yeah, they're involved in it, but I haven't heard much from the NBA. Uh, there actually have been news out today about the NBA commissioner wow. talking about this. Wow. But let's give kind of a backtrack and give some more context to this. Okay. So. Colin Kaepernick, he at one point took a knee during the national anthem, which I think sparked a spectrum of activism across the sports world. And it's I think that it's I wouldn't say that him taking the knee is divisive, but I think that the rhetoric that came after the taking the knee, whether it be from the president or from the community, which is against it, it's been divisive. So the act sparked dialogue that was necessary to communities regarding inequity and racial injustices and police brutality, yet a lot lot of individuals are pretty much against the act because they think that it's disrespecting the flag and the military individuals who fought for the country as opposed to looking at it as a vehicle to spark meaningful dialogue regarding protesting injustices in the United States. And let's start with a little even a little bit more context because initially when Colin Kaepernick took a knee it wasn't that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. People heard about it, people had conversations about it, but it wasn't an issue where people were up in arms arms and were fighting over it. Mm -hmm. It kind of operated in the way that a lot of black activism operates in that it slowly blacklisted Colin Kaepernick and at the end of that season he was not signed on to another team. And because mm -hmm. he wasn't signed on to another team, that actually led to a lot more political unrest about this issue. Mm -hmm. People started to say, well, Colin Kaepernick is so much better than so many other quarterbacks that you have on roster for different mm -hmm. teams this year. And because He's been blacklisted because of his activism, basically. And that's racism. Which is exactly. And so that is actually when Donald Trump got involved because when he began to talk about this issue and began to comment and critique the fact that Colin Kaepernick was taking a knee, immediately everyone began to kind of build up the tension about taking a knee and what that stands for as a form of political speech. Well, not only speech. that, I think more NFL players started taking the knee in response to. Kaepernick being blacklisted and then Donald Trump jumped in. It, it, it's in part that, right? Yeah. But it also began with Donald Trump at this Alabama rally for uh, one of the the you know primary candidates who didn't even win the primary. Oh. Um, he made the the statement about NFL coaches and NFL commissioner um, and and team owners talking about removing players that were taking a knee, right? He, yeah. he called them an expletive. He called their their mothers an expletive. Exactly. Um, and, you know, creating this whole firestorm, whereas people felt, all right, if you're going to challenge us and insult us for taking a knee, which is the most quiet and passive protest I could really yeah, think of. and then you look at the free, the quote-unquote free speech rally ignited by Nazis and 
and such, and then you tell them that they're nice people, knowing that that speech or their protesting incited violence specifically. And when the NFL players are doing this knee, they're not necessarily inciting anything. You know, they're speaking up against injustices without Mm -hmm. having to speak at all. They're literally taking a knee. And so that created a lot of tension for players and made them feel like they had to actually take a stand by taking a knee. Mm -hmm. And so over the past week, over the past weekend, we've seen a bunch of different teams either take a knee during the national anthem. Some didn't even come out of the locker rooms when the national anthem was playing. Mm -hmm. And all of these were seen as various different ways to protest either Donald Trump or the initial issue that Colin Kaepernick was trying to to pose, Mm -hmm. which is racial injustice in this country. And so it's now kind of been muddled, and it has this really weird component to it now where people on the left, people on the right, are also trying to grab onto this common middle ground to see who is winning in this attempt to influence free speech. So, for example, before... Trump even made this comment. There were calls for the black community to boycott the NFL because they had not uh, brought Colin Kaepernick back onto a team. Mm -hmm. So people weren't watching games. They weren't buying tickets to go to games. And as a result, we started to see images of football stadiums being pretty sparse. So people thought, all right, this movement is working by removing our money from these spaces. We're actually having an influence on how they interact with their customers and with the American public in general. After Donald Trump made those comments then, there was this idea that people on the right were going to protest the NFL letting people take a knee by not going to games too. So now the issue of who's going to games and who isn't going to games is up for grabs within this kind of middle ground where the left is saying people aren't showing up because we're boycotting the NFL because you're racist. And then people on the right are saying no one's showing up to games because we are boycotting the NFL because you are unpatriotic. So in the middle ground is this really weird question of who is doing the protesting for what reason and for what goal? Well, I'm not worried about the right protesting. I'm really not. And I'm not worried about anyone who protests other people's way of protesting. And that for the, from that, I mean, um, I'm not worried about... Like the, the right, burning of jackets yeah, exactly. and, and jerseys just, and memorabilia that people yeah, have been doing? Yeah, I'm not worried about that. I think that we just need to touch on four very significant caveats, which are activism tactics. I think that we need to talk about, firstly, why are NFL owners chiming in? And we need to talk about the fact that they are chiming in at this point. They let it get to this point, whereas the president has gotten involved and has and just called them out. exactly expletives regarding them. Why are they just now joining? We can talk about the other critiques of activism. We can talk about people saying that kneeling is unpatriotic, that people saying that it's okay for them to protest, but just not here. And we can talk about the critique that they're being paid millions of dollars to play a game while they just play the game. I mean, when we talk about these issues and we talk about critiques of protest tactics, this has been a tool used by the right and even people on the left when trying to talk critically about the actions that people take to pursue these projects for racial justice, for gender justice, for economic justice. All of these different projects have different techniques and different tactics that they use in order to get attention to have that conversation. And so for those who are saying that the protesting is disrespecting the flag, I think that that's just disrespectful in itself, that statement, because clearly you're not looking at the root of the issue. You're not looking at the system systemic injustices that are causing the players to, I guess, have to protest. Players are not protesting against the flag. 
They're using the anthem as a vehicle to protest inequality. They're protesting police brutality. Like I said before, they're protesting injustices. And I think that that's the conversation that no one wants to have because this story has been hijacked, as Nick Wright said on air. The story has been hijacked to talk about protesting against military um, representatives and against the flag. This is not a protest about that. This is about unity. This is about racial justice. Even Colin telling us that he kneeled after discussing the best ways to protest with the military. And this is what they suggested. And so I think that this just sheds light on how easy it is to overlook the real meaning of certain actions and certain protesting avenues and say, okay, this is why you are, why you're not doing it correctly. I think it's almost the same as within Ferguson. People were so caught up on the damage done by some of the activists. And mind you, this wasn't all of the activists. The Black Lives Matter movement does not mean to incite damage, is not meant to be rowdy or arguments and fights and such, such. They're meant to get a point across and maybe if their political uh, strategies are not completely orthodox, that's not your place to critique. You need to think about the message. And I think that in all of this and continuously critiquing the player's ability to, um, to sit during this anthem, I think that you're losing the message. It's becoming convoluted in that critique. So the attention is definitely shifting. And I think that strategically it's shifting for the right wing. And I think that in general, us trying to People on the left trying to pursue these different projects shouldn't be caring about the way in which people police their actions if those people care about it in the first place. If people care about it and they're talking about it and they're saying you shouldn't be doing this, that's because they have heard about it and are offended and disrupted by it. And that is a good thing. So for me, I don't actually think whether or not they are protesting the flag, Mm -hmm. it isn't bad to protest the flag because the whole idea of protesting the flag is is saying that what this flag represents is actually not true. This country has not kept their promise of equal protection amongst all citizens. And so maybe we are protesting this flag in this country. And and that's important for us to be able to do because that is a First Amendment right that we are allowed to to do. In fact, there was a guy that actually was arrested for burning the flag and just got a settlement from the police for doing that and then reposted the image of him burning the flag. He was like, this was always okay for me to do that. It's all hypocrisy. And even going from... Um, you're you're not supposed to wear insignia of the flag. You're not supposed to, you know, lay the flag horizontally, you know, down. Oh, yeah, the flag so, code exactly, or and all the that. flag code. And we're breaking it. We even break it in sports constantly. Yet we want to sit here and talk about individuals kneeling during the flag. So in, in order to get a political point across. And so I think that it's just all hypocrisy at this point. And also, I think the argument about these players are being given millions of dollars to just play this game. What does that take away from? That, I feel like that dehumanizes these players, mm-hmm. regardless of their pay for the sport, the sport that they exert so much mental and physical energy in. They're being taken away from their families and such. And you're saying, oh, you're making millions of dollars for doing this. OK, well, that's their livelihood. Right. Outside of that livelihood, they still have political affiliations. They still, by phenotypes, are being judged socially and treated as such. And so for you to trivialize their protesting because of the fact that they're in sports, you know, I mean, if everyone can be in the NFL and NBA, everyone would, you know, (laughs) (laughs) know, maybe, would you? Perhaps. (laughs) Perhaps. Right. But, you know, you cannot trivialize it into them 
oh, they're making this much money to do this because it takes away from them being human. They're still human. They still have opinions. They're, they're still in there. Even one NFL player, he posted, he demanded, I get, do you remember the story? Mm-hmm. He demanded an apology from the police department during uh, the fight weekend because he was wrongfully discriminated. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. He's an NFL player, and him kneeling would have spoken to that injustice that he suffered at the hand of police. So, you know, outside of the game, but, you know, the, I think that to try to extricate their political affiliations from the fact that they're on a sport teams is not only unreliable, but then it, it sinks into an unreliable narrative about how we feel about people who are representing us. And, and, and it's really important to realize that this isn't the first time that a black athlete has pushed for some type of social change and has been shut down or blacklisted for it. There's a plethora of names that we could list going all the way back to, you know, Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics or Muhammad Ali protesting the Vietnam War, Serena Williams and other, you know, folks in the mainstream today Mm -hmm. that have been pushing for these issues. Uh, All goes to show that people will always come after you when you're saying something that is going to disrupt their comfort and their privilege. And I think it's important for us to think a little bit now about what does the hashtag take a knee, you know, activist project stand for now? And I think that it's kind of muddy and that's kind of unfortunate because we at this point don't really know what taking a knee means or what the project and the act was to, you know, signify. Usually when you're doing a, a movement like this or an action like this, the idea is to take up space to disrupt space and then use that disruption to talk about the issue that you care about. Mm-hmm. What's happening now is that the taking of a knee is the statement itself. Exactly. So the, to take a knee. As opposed to the message behind it. Exactly. So now no the question. So now the question is, if you take a knee, are you patriotic or not, or do you care about the country or the flag or yeah. veterans or not? When it really should be, now that we've taken a knee and now that you care about it and you're pissed, let's talk about all the racial injustices that black people, people of color, immigrants, women, exactly. you know, LGBT people still encounter on a daily basis. Exactly. And if we were to begin having that conversation again, I think all of the commotion that we've experienced over take a knee would actually be worthwhile. And in fact, you know, Trump made comments about the take a knee protest and said, this isn't about race. I haven't said anything about race. This is just about patriotism. And, and in him saying that yeah. really represents what the issue is. The, if the he issue thinks, is the fact that, first of all, he hasn't said anything about race. Thank you for finally admitting it. Right. When clearly this issue is about race. It's about race, racial inequalities and the inequities suffered by different racial groups in America. So if you're going to say this is not about race, then you don't know much about this country. And that is probably accurate and probably the best description of (laughs) of the Trump administration is is it is ignoring race and moving away from it. And by ignoring it, they think that it isn't about race. you're You're overlooking the substance of the issue in order to critique how the issue is brought to your face. So I'm overlooking what taking a knee is about in order to critique the fact that individuals are taking a knee, calling it disrespectful when clearly it's hypocrisy. So I wanted to talk about the owners joining in on this debate, the owners finally coming up and speaking out against Donald Trump. What do you think about that? I think that when we talk about these NFL owners, the question is, are they fighting for this because of a interest in racial justice or are they fighting because they're feeling Exactly. That's exactly what I'm thinking. So, you know, there is a theory called the interest convergence theory, and it was brought it was coined by Derek Bell. And that theory basically says 
actually Cam told me a little bit about that theory, but I started researching it a bit more, which is great. The theory says non-black people don't really... Or people with privilege. Yes, people with privilege in general do not join social or political movements unless it's going to somehow benefit them. And so an example would be Brown versus Board of Education. And um, we... The argument was that these schools were desegregated because in a time where there was war, particularly with the Soviet Union, the Cold War, they wanted the United States to look as though they supported human rights and civil rights. Mm. And so clearly that benefited the individuals that were able to access resources in certain schools, you know, desegregation, but it also benefited the United States and the privileged individuals. And so... Right now, the issue is that these owners are finally stepping up. Now, one thing that I will say is I think that's conflicting is that these owners, they knew what kind of person Trump was. They heard him. He's called individuals way worse than the expletive that he called these NFL players before demanding that their coaches fire them for taking a protest, taking a knee. And so they knew, not only knew, what kind of person he was, but they donated millions of dollars to his inauguration, you know, and to even his presidential campaign. And so why now that this is such a hot topic, are you stepping up and finally speaking against a president that you put into office, knowing his viewpoints, knowing his discriminatory rhetoric, knowing what he's advancing and emboldening in the country in order to create divisiveness? Why is now the perfect time for you to step out and say, hey, this is not right, this is incorrect behavior, and I support my players taking the knee. What do you think? I, I mean, that that all is very much true. And for my, I guess, my what I find most interesting about this is whether or not the NFL <clears throat> is going to be seen as the winner or the loser in this and on what side they're going to end up. So at this point, well, yeah, who both are sides... The winners and who are the losers? Right, right. Like, at this point, there's a question of, you know... Are NFL commissioners and our NFL coaches and teams going to be siding with their players who are taking a knee? Or are they going to be siding with financial interest and economic interest that might be pursued? Why are we separating the two? I think that they have a financial and economic interest in in going with their players. And I think that especially if these top players are taking a knee, for example, last week, Travis Kelsey, he took a knee. Do you think he's about to get fired or even at risk? No. Mm. I mean, I don't know. I'm tr- I truly do not know because we don't understand at this point how far the NFL is willing to go to maintain the economic interests that they have over the players that they have. And, and you're right that players themselves are economic interests that the NFL has. And, and so that's the question. Are they siding with their players because they know they need their players or because they agree and support the racial justice initiative that these players are taking a knee for? And so I think looking forward, it's important to see, are NFL commissioners going to take that stance? Are they going to make that statement and say, we support the racial justice project that Colin Kaepernick and other players have been supporting in that we would like police officers to stop killing black people and people of color and women and trans people, right? Mm-hmm. Or are they going to keep it very shallow and say we, you know, broadly support the efforts that our players, um, you know, make on social issues, as was what I think the NBA commissioner said at one point. Though today it's looking like the NBA commissioner is saying that he expects all, you know, players to stand for the national anthem and to be respectful of mm-hmm. the flag, et cetera. And, and, and it, 
all of that is really frustrating to me because we already have veterans that have said we fought for this right. We fought for you to be able to sit down and take a knee. Exactly. We're not fighting for you to show unflinching and uncritical, you know, allegiance to this country because that is not what a democracy does. A democracy is always trying to perfect the union. And to perfect it, you have to acknowledge first that it isn't perfect and and sometimes it isn't just or equal and for the long majority of time in america that has been the case and at the very at the very very least i'm tired of folks that have probably been sitting down in front of their tv eating nachos and popcorn and fries who sit down when the anthem's playing complaining about other people taking a knee like y'all are not in front of your TV standing up with your hand over your heart. I do not believe that you are are showing that much respect. And as we already said... And you're also not about to go onto the field and risk your life, basically risk your sanity at this point. Uh, These players are suffering concussions at crazy speed these days. Mm -hmm. You know, they're being taken... You know, they're missing holidays with their families and they're... And again, I think that just it goes into the humanization of these players. So you're not you're you're not risking anything. You're just sitting behind a computer on Facebook or your favorite social media platform, talking mess to who protest and about who protest and why. And honestly, if you're not critique, if you're not aiding and helping the same institutions that you want to critique, then your opinion probably doesn't matter. I'm sorry. I'm just looking forward for the critiques of folks that are burning jerseys and memorabilia in huge bonfires in their backyards mm-hmm. and having barbecues over the yeah. fact that they having hate people taking like, knees. Exactly. Please. So now we're going to get into the petty. That's correct. So we have news that Kylie Jenner is pregnant and also that Kim and Kanye are expecting a third child via surrogate. And both of those things are great. Like the baby's like on its way, like they're in labor. <laughs> they're, they're due soon from what I understand. Like this is not, you know, oh, they're just beginning their, their pregnancy or anything like that. I feel like they're obviously have there's been some time and they're, you know, having a healthy baby. Um, and we wish for both for, for both of them. All Don't of get them, me wrong for, for both families. Right. Um, my thing is, and the thing that I wanted to particularly talk about that I thought was petty is about <laughs> how the Kardashian clan has been kind of birthing its way into blackness. Yes. And I think that that okay, part, so we can talk about <laughs> What no, do you have to say, Brave? First of all, can you birth your way into blackness? The Kardashian clan has been most critiqued at this point for their appropriation of black culture. That's a valid critique. I mean, from the corn rolls to the black men to ex- everything, everything, to the, I think, even facial features that have been altered to look more like black phenotypes. Yes. I, uh, yeah, I think that they have been uh, appropriating black culture. However... Are they trying to burn themselves into the black culture? What do you think? Because all of their kids, uh, absent Kourtney Kardashian's kids, are black. And I think that is corollary enough for the point that we're trying to make, especially given all of the events that have been happening in the black community, to see that, you know, 
Kim Kardashian and Kanye have two black babies, right? Mm. And I've been trying to make statements, but haven't really been out. And again, we were talking what earlier about. Well, that's what I'm trying to say, right? But I don't well, not anymore. That's the point. To the black community. That's like, the point. Like we were, we were talking earlier about how Kanye had made that statement about you know George Bush not caring about black people, and since then have last I checked, he was having meetings with Trump at Trump Tower. So it's like I know we don't really they know didn't want to speak out about how black people basically have been blocked from entering the fashion community. You know, and yeah, big label names, which is interesting enough to me because his clothes, if you can call those garments clothes they sell for about what four or five hundred a t-shirt something crazy it's crazy no his prices are so are so um they're i guess exclusive at this point to mm-hmm. a certain community because clearly the black people that he alleges that he's trying to get into the fashion industry they're not mostly able to afford these items so i don't understand how you're speaking out so much about black people being blocked from the fashion fashion community but your prices are pricing out black people from accessing your own clothes like why are your yeezys like retailing how much i think i, no. I feel like you're personally hurt by by, the, no, by Kanye I, West on that i, am, I was I never buying yeezys it. so like that isn't my issue you know and it's you know i've made it my issue and i, I stand here as a hip a hypocrite because i do have a pair of yeezys oh yeah i do do you yeah <laughs> all right I mean, that's cool. I, I still think that, you know, for example... But, but I, I'm not cha- trying to change the fashion industry, so maybe that's not hypocrisy. Maybe not. it isn't. I mean, one thing that I know for sure is that, you know, we had Fenty Beauty that just came out. A lot of black women have been really excited about is that. It, it From what I understand, it's pretty affordable. Great. The issue is that immediately after that, Kylie Jenner and her kind of makeup line was then magically more inclusive of different skin tones, right? Mm. And so it goes to show you the I know, fact that... I because Mary Poppins lip stuff wasn't looking cute with my skin, boo. And, and, and that has been a common issue with many makeup brands in that they do not care as much about darker skin girls. Yeah, she has and a lot wh- of nude and, lipsticks. And nude Kylie, your nude is not our nude. And that's always no. been an issue, right? <laughs> but to know that, you know, Kylie Jenner is about to have... A, a, black a black child baby. that is potentially not going to be able to use the makeup that her mother has been producing is kind of going to show the idea of like being birthing into black culture, but not supporting black culture in the most holistic what, sense. Exactly. What if there's a plot twist? What if there's a white baby? Because we really don't know who her baby daddy is. I don't think it's respectful to inquire, but who is her baby daddy? I, From what I understood, they had said who her baby was, no, uh, her baby father was. say, oh, that's my baby on Snapchat, and then her new boyfriend... What's his name? Well, there are two, there are two people two she's been dating, Tyga and Travis Scott. We, so I, regardless, look, the baby's going to be black. If, if, if they, if they very, I think that it's up for speculation. I think that if we come back next week with a plot twist, be ready. All right. If, if we find that out. All I'm saying is that Kylie said that it, the baby wasn't planned. So, uh, But beyond that, <laughs> what? beyond that, it looks like the baby's I black. Have I don't have so, anything to do with it. All I'm saying is the, baby the baby's wasn't black. planned. Oh, my God. The baby's black. Oh, my God. The so so black. that is. That is the issue that we're kind of dealing with here is that we have the Kardashian clan who have, for many, many people in that family have dated exclusively black people mm-hmm. and have been pushing black culture, have been changing their features, have been marketing black products, right? Mm-hmm. Stealing from black women in many exactly, ways. Exactly. Exploiting black products and, and now, black individuals. And now by having black children, is that going to be giving them more license to interact with this culture in a way that is exploitative rather than regenerative? 
rather than trying to build the community and be a respectful, you know, participant in black culture. Because the idea but, that... Because I haven't heard them speak out on anything. And, and the general idea that black culture is, is, is exported globally, whether we want it to or not. Exactly. And so we always appreciate respectful understanding and appreciation of black culture, mm-hmm. not exploitation of it and use for for making exactly. money. Remember exactly. back when Kendall did the Pepsi ad... Right. And with trying what to solve that? What was that? <laughs> rather than taking a knee, she pulled out exactly. a Pepsi. Right. Exactly. And, and so the statements that have been made by the Kardashians about racial justice issues have paled in comparison to the money they've made off of acting black I mean, in the first act- place. And what is acting black? I think that the, I don't really like using that term, but I think that that just speaks into the terms the term of black authenticity or the idea of black authenticity. What is black authenticity and how is it looked at interracially and intraracially and what is yeah. yeah, what is authentically black? And so at this point, do the Kardashians have a pass or a leeway into black authenticity being like what no. is Yeah, exactly, because we really don't know what race is. You know, we don't know how to how it's properly defined in the United States. I, I think the general idea though is that we have cultural elements that have been created after Exclusive, through history. Yeah, exclusively, like or not even to black the black culture. Right, it's exclusively tied, but it's exported. Right, so the idea isn't that you can't share in or experience black culture in some way. Obviously, there are some parts of black culture that are supposed to be for black eyes only, but <laughs> but the for question black eyes only. But the, the question still is, you know. If you have access to these things because you can afford it or because, you know, black men find you attractive, potentially at the expense of black women, right, Mm -hmm. Um, as many people in in black entertainment are, you know, how are you using this access to— If you're using it to exploit, then you're becoming part of the problem and then you're also actively perpetuating it. I think also important is to think about black people in general and how they're treated in the United States. So we can say, okay, this is not a black thing. This has to do with other races and such, but no other race has been taught to systemically hate themselves. No other race has such unprecedented and unregulated forms of not only psychiatric hate, but physical violence implemented against them. So mm-hmm. It is a black thing. And also I wanted to talk about how um, I think that, you know, pregnancy, young mothers, how it, I kind of, I would suppose, transfer beyond racial lines and creates a type of division, I think, among like what age it's appropriate for a woman to have a baby. Because I think that a 20-year-old having a baby would be kind of like a spectrum in, I guess, a poor black community. You know, a black baby being birthed to a 20-year-old, that's a young mother, you know. In normal cases, she wouldn't be super prepared, but I think that Kylie Jenner has privilege. She's a 20-year-old young mom, but she's also a millionaire, a multimillionaire. And and she's white, right? Like, we have to realize that a 20-year-old woman of color giving birth to to a child is controversial in mm-hmm. any it's other respect exactly. right it, it's this and, idea exactly. and, and speculation about whether or not she's married or whether what her family thinks you know that those things would come into question as opposed to kylie jenner being pregnant everyone's kind of like applauding it right i think that she just graduated high school In other relevant news about people exploiting white culture, Taylor Swift has been dethroned. Um, her, 
<laughs> her fancy single about things that she did or did not do and who forced her to do them uh, have been dethroned by our own Cardi B and Bodak Yellow. Bodak Yellow have been around. It was a song of the summer in many ways. I know all of the lyrics by heart. Um, and it actually Me went too. to number one um, on the Billboard Top 100, I believe. Why do you think it went to number one? What what in those lyrics made it go to number one? I think it was just a very empowering song. It, it made was. people feel like they you were high and on fire. Yeah, no, like like I feel like it made people feel like they were, you know, that that person, right? The person that, in charge, the HBIC, expletive. if you know <laughs> that what that is. Insert expletive. Right. Know, explanation point. <laughs> so, you know, Cardi B has been pushing for this type of, uh, you know, spotlight and for this recognition for for quite some time. This was a, you know, she's already put out two mixtapes in six months. You know, who's working as hard as her? Belcalis Almanzar, okay? And so Cardi B, you know, had very humble beginnings, right? Began humble. working as a dancer and has been able to get into the rap industry in a really short period of time. Dance she makes money move. And, and it's so, like, her work has been so successful that she was able to obviously rise right to the top right of to this top. chart, being the second only black woman to do this. Other than Lauren Hill. Other than Lauren Hill, who Lauren, was the first. baby, can you come out with another album, girl? I'm tired. I'm tired of this game. I, I don't... <laughs> Good luck. Good luck getting Warren Hill to do um, that. No, she's playing games. I still listen to Killing Me Softly. Congratulations to Cardi B. We're really excited to see the platform that she's going to be able to make out of this. It's really great that we already have her tweeting about Donald Trump and about the fact that he isn't giving support to Puerto Rico and other places affected by these hurricanes. Mm -hmm. So she's already becoming political. She's also, you know, getting a lot of support from black women in the community. I know there was like some random beef between Azalea Banks. I was going to say Nicki Minaj, but... Was there a beef? No, Azalea Banks created that. And Azalea Banks needs to just stop. What I'm did so Azalea Banks do, though? She, okay, she went on Instagram, her favorite social media platform, mm. and she started talking about how, basically, I think Nicki Minaj was more deserving of it and that, you know, black people are pretty much genuflecting amongst this girl who's not even black and talking about Cardi B and how she's Latina. Mm. You know, Azalea Banks, I th she's a fool, and I, I can't stand her. However, I think that that is something that's interesting to get into. And that's kind of problematic. That yeah, that claim is interesting. But again, Cardi B has a Trinidadian mom and a Dominican father, and I think that here we come like discussing like the I guess the dynamics of race versus ethnicity and such and would you consider Cardi B black? Of course. I mean yeah, so she, the black I mean, the black diaspora is very broad, it's right? Very real. And so to be Afro Latinx means that you have roots in Latin America but also have roots in Africa as well yeah, or from Dominicans, the Caribbean. I think are black people. You know, like blame like the transatlantic slave trade if exactly. if you don't believe that. It's yeah. not the way that these currents operated meant that we had black people moving throughout the the Caribbean, throughout Latin America, also throughout parts of North America in ways that created really nice and interesting cultural mashups like you have in parts of the Caribbean, like Trinidad, like uh, the, the Dominican Republic. And so it's really important that we make sure that, at least for Azalea Bank's sake, 
we acknowledge that Cardi B is black and is obviously deserving of this as is anyone else. Exactly. And I know at least on Twitter, people were talking with like, you know, Nicki Minaj stands were, no, were kind of mad about no, it. No, 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 Nicki Minaj. No, you didn't Well, well it. But Nicki Minaj, no, wait, because Nicki Minaj obviously congratulated her for it. I know, it. and I'm happy that so, she did that. I'm happy that she finally recognized But that, she wasn't mad about it in the first place is what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, she, no, she, I didn't think she, she was ever mad about it, but I mean, to the Nicki stands, no, Nicki Minaj was not going to get this. Nicki Minaj is a sellout. She is not the best female rapper. Well, and I think that right, Remy Ma showed us that. And Remy Ma, Nicki Minaj. Get, all right. <laughs> Cam is salty over next there. Week, so. <laughs> about to catch some stands and no mentions. But continue. What were you saying? I'm over it. I just wanted to let you guys know I'm all behind Remy Ma. Okay. That's it. That's all I'm gonna say, Cam. I that's I, all I'm gonna say. Who's better, Remy Ma or Nicki Minaj? I don't can play. choose both. No, you can't. I, yes, I can. Choose one. I choose can one. absolutely like. Choose one. I don't pit black rap, black female it's rappers. It's not pitting. It's just talking do about it. lyricism and who's more black talented. women. You can be more talented all than the black next women. person, regardless of the race. Tell us who's better, Remy Ma or Nicki Minaj. I I truly don't know because okay, I'm not. Okay, well a, I'll answer for you guys. It's oh, it's Remy Ma. Okay. And now we have Cardi B at number one, and let's see how that goes. Okay, who's better, Cardi B or Remy? Did it? Well, oh, oh, oh now you don't want to. Oh, now you don't want to. No. Now you don't want to do it, right? I don't have to. Well, okay. no, oh, you don't, no, no, no. Oh, objectively, oh, objectively. Oh, hello? hello. Let me tell you something, Remy Ma. Remy Ma is a way right. a better lyricist, of course, than Cardi B. That song that Cardi B produced, uh, "Bodak Yellow," I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was uh, the best rap song ever. It was just a bop. Like every time it turns onto the club, I'm gonna take off my shoes. That's how it's gonna go. Okay. But I wouldn't say she's just a rapper now because she produced that song, and I'm hoping that she can produce something relatively as good as that song. Stay at the top, baby. Congratulations, Cardi. <laughs> Congratulations, Cardi. Please, please keep shining, <laughs> Just, despite the haters like me. <laughs> All right, y'all. This has been another episode of Petty Politics. Thank you so much for listening. We got into the politics. We got into the petty. And hopefully we'll be able to continue giving you information about law school for those of you that are interested in potentially applying. Mm-hmm. Hopefully we'll be able to continue giving you tea every day, all day. It's burning hot over here, ain't it? So continue following us on social media. Brie, what is that? Okay, so our handles are at Harvard Bolsa. That's at H-A-R-V-A-R-D-B-L-S-A. And that's both for Twitter and for Instagram. Also, we are now on the Apple <gasps> iTunes app. We are app. on iTunes. We're live. Like, we're live. We're lit. We go to Apple Music, live. look up podcast. You will find it. I'm so excited. I'm too hyped about this. So <laughs> please go there, like, and subscribe. Send us a comment. comment review. Tell us the content we need to ask. Starting, uh, ideally, next week, we're going to start having people come on. And we're looking at big names. Talking about big names. Not just not just people in the community. Not just the locals. We got some. We got some fire. <laughs> Kim's making a face at me. Okay. We do. We we might. (laughs) So tell us who you want to hear. Come on here. We're open to adverse opinions. We're open to tea. We're open to everything. Awesome, y'all. Until next week. Take care. Take care.